Welcome to another episode of Hand Craftsmanship in the Digital Age, conversations about work with people who think with their hands. I'm Strother Purdy, your host, and today we will get directly to an introduction, which I didn't do with the other Tim, Tim Hochstetter. I left it to, to him to introduce himself, which I will also do for you too, because you do know yourself a whole lot better than I do. Mm. But I should say some nice <laughs> I should say some nice things of why on earth I am interviewing this. Yeah, Tim, I want to know too. Why yeah. this Tim <laughs> Sams versus any other Tim Sams. What the hell am I doing here? Right. What are you doing here? Well, you are here because not to pay you. Okay. You are a key. No, no, there's there's no no, I'm not you're paying me. Uh, That's what I said. Yeah, I tried to pay exactly. you. You should be. <laughs> because Tim Sams is an exquisitely thoughtful, multi-talented person that I have known for many years. He is extremely kind and insightful. And also, although and it's mainly those reasons uh, of your multi-talentedness, but it's one aspect of that multi-talentedness that is of great interest here, which is that you have worked both thoughtfully with your hands as a professional and also thoughtfully with your, I guess, fingers on a keyboard in an <laughs> office. Now, Tim Hochstetter, uh, and looking at that interview, really didn't get too far into sort of some basics of what he's created. I Perhaps yeah. images yeah, would have been quite helpful there to show some of the uh, glass that he has blown, the inflated uh, stainless steel work that he's done, all these wow. crazy things mm -hmm. to go, oh, wow, yeah, I see what uh, the, the resin floors that he's done. Uh, that would that would be sort of the credentials for mm. oh that's why this guy is interesting mm. um and so on that on that basis i'd love to get you to talk a little bit about the work that you've done okay uh, boosting yourself so that literally <laughs> listeners can say oh oh okay yeah so this is the guy that i really want to call when i need mm. something done this way or that so mm. i think i've rambled my wife says i ramble my children say i ramble and i could only hope that the rambling is interesting or engaging so I'll, right now i'll shut the hell up and let you ramble. <laughs> okay so what do you want me to do um that that's do you want me to just to kind of give um what do you do what work yeah I'll, I'll give you a quick intro uh I, so um at the moment i and for the last gosh, 12 years, I have actually been working in white collar, what we'll, you and I can call white collar work um, for a company that sells um, educational resources um, and for particularly for MBA and undergraduate business courses. Um, we do simulations and um, and it's a it's a really interesting thing. It taps into a lot of things for me, which I can get to why oh, why I find that interesting. I'm the director of marketing for that. Um, Prior to that, though, uh, I was a carpenter for seven years. Prior to that, I was at Fine Woodworking Magazine. And then Taunton, originally, I just started with Taunton and then got to Fine Woodworking. And then prior to that, I was in publishing on my own. I was doing, I launched some magazines myself. I'd done a couple different things. And prior to that, I was a kid who <laughs> always... Um, who flunked out of college twice. Um, 
All right. Who, who, uh, who yeah, and uh, who struggled to find his place in a world that um, required me to sit down and kind of do the thing, which is why the piece about being a carpenter for seven years played a really significant and important point. And uh, that's what I thought of. If you'd like, I can address that and how that's influenced, influenced what I'm doing now. So absolutely carry me to uh, carry this interview to the, the most interesting aspects. Um, but just to fill out a little bit of detail in, in your background, the simulation software that you do, what, yeah. I mean, are you walking into virtual reality? What, what's going on? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, we're not walking into virtual reality so much as we are. Um, we basically start the, the students with a case, which basically yeah. is a narrative, you know, for you and I as English majors, that's, it's, a, it's a story. And it's presenting them with a situation that they have to, as a as a marketing department of you know this company who is manufacturing these products, you have to then you you've confronted some problems with these customers or with the with this competition, and you need to make decisions accordingly going forward. And then you as a team against the other team, your teams in the class make decisions, and then the model of this of the simulation it's all through a web portal. The model of the simulation spits back results to you. And it's a fascinating, exciting thing because it's not just a decision tree. It's actually the, the decisions of your teammates are actually making impacts on your decisions. So it's a really wild model. Yeah, wild. it's wild. And it the idea is that, you know, you know, the old story that if you um you know the the, the presumed person who went out and and got his first job and and made a million dollar mistake and the boss says of course I'm not going to fire you I just paid a million dollars for your education kind of thing well that's what simulations look to try to prevent um is the million dollar mistakes that basically you can make a million dollar mistakes in the virtual world and it'll be okay um, <laughs> and one of the things that my job has is all about is explaining to instructors I mean that's my that's yeah my yeah this explain is the problem we got to solve how do you incorporate this into your class so that yeah. it, there's a seamlessness and 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 a um that it makes logical sense you know like why am i why am i going into the simulation well because we've just covered all of this material and i want you to kind of understand how to use it that's the thing i like yeah. about business having been a business person myself i and having had businesses that have failed and some that have succeeded i feel strongly about the fact of huh. these these kinds of uh practical applications uh, for knowledge. I'm a, you know, I'm a huge nerd as you, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I love to dive deep into the intellectual and, 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 you know, be all about the brain and, and that type of thing. But where it really hits the road is what, what I'm all about too. Like, what do you do with that information? So yep. that's, that's what I'm all about. So hopefully that's neat. All. Neat. Yeah. So your problem is to convince people to use this. Yes. <clears throat> gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, a thousand more questions there, but trying to stay within the 12 hour <laughs> limit of this interview. Yeah, that's right. Then, bathroom had, breaks? Uh, sorry, you can have bathroom breaks. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm 57 years old, man. Come on now. <laughs> okay. I guess we can edit those out if no. I can find them um, in the, in the long file. So then, so then leaving the practical, uh, hands-on work that you've done as a carpenter for yeah. sort of the last item then at fine woodworking you had a different set mm. of 
problems to solve. And could mm. you say what you did as a fine woodworking editor? Ooh. Well, when I first arrived at Taunton, um, I was working as the fine woodworking web editor, but I quickly moved into working with John Lively, who was the editor in chief of the company at the time, working with him to help devise the internet strategy. They, they'd had a publisher, but they had parted ways with that person. And so John and I were working on how, this is early 2000, basically 2000, how is Taunton going to navigate the digital world going forward? Because Taunton has very valuable information. We didn't want to just give it away. How do we actually go about that? So I, yeah. I enjoyed that for a while. Um, and then um, I got the opportunity to move over to Fine Woodworking Magazine, which was really my, my primary thing I wanted to do. I was a woodworker at, you know, that my heart and, and Fine Woodworking was the flagship of, of Taunton. So I finally got a chance to be an associate editor over there under Tim Schreiner. And then quickly Tim moved up and then Anatole Birkin was my uh, editor. Yeah. Um, I, my job was to, uh, it was a dream job, frankly. It was to meet with these authors, uh, some of my greatest heroes, you know, Garrett Hack and Christian Bexford and all these other guys, uh, Phil Lowe, all those yeah. guys, and, and spend time with them working on an article, fleshing it out. Um, conceptually, yeah. that was a, the best job in the world. And um, also, then you go to their shop and take their photos while they're doing what it is that they're writing about. To clarify for the audience that might not know, these are woodworkers who are also authors, very famous, very talented, incredibly capable yeah. furniture makers. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I, this and little authors. schmuck from Virginia, was was spending time with them, hours and hours and hours with them. <laughs> I felt I felt deeply uh lucky. You know, frankly, yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I gleaned so much from that. Um but um, a quick, a quick aside. Yeah. How did you find these people interesting? Where did that come from? The interest in woodworking? Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was a big fan of the early 1975 and 19 to 79 fine woodworkings. I was yeah. kind of big into the back of the back to the land movement that 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 was kind of like filling and feeding. Um, and I would basically read everything that they published because I had that, you know, there be if I woodworking, I could look it all up and just like read everything they had ever done. So I already yeah. knew a little bit about the way they approached things. Um yeah, to make work things on your own. I'm sorry. That was to you were reading the magazine to make things on your own? Or? Yes. Yes. And to gain my skills. Like what was funny was I had not cut a dovetail myself until <laughs> I got to find woodworking. And Mike Pekovich, the uh, current art director, Mike Pekovich, set me up. And this is actually a really, I'm glad you brought that up because this is really important. So Fine Woodworking, for those who don't know, has a shop, or at least it used to. I don't know if it does anymore, but they have a shop yeah. that's connected to the editorial offices. And it was where they used a lot, did a lot of photo shoots, but they had a really nice, pretty setup there, a really nice setup there. And I was there without my family for about three months um, before yeah. they moved up. So I had time. And Mike set me up with this, um, and Shredder, you'll laugh about this, but basically showed me how to draw lines on the edge of a board. And basically I practiced, he said, I want you to do 50 cuts every day and yeah. making straight line cuts for, for to learn how to cut. He said, before I even touch a, a chisel, I want you to, to do this. Yeah. And so I did that dutifully for two weeks until I finally got into it. To this day, this is this was 2000. To this day, I still have muscle memory. Memory. In fact, in yeah. preparation for this little uh, little interview you have with me, I went back into my shop and um, and set up and, and cut lines. Um, yeah. Damned <laughs> if it didn't it didn't feel good. It, I was like, oh, I remember this. Yeah. 
what I'm getting at is that that there's a um, and I, I think it's probably something you're going to expound about in your book a bit. What at least I, I bet you will, um, because it's a really interesting concept. Like yeah. muscle memory is is a really important aspect of working with your hands. Yeah, and it's where <clears throat> people suddenly go, oh, you just make that look so easy. It's like no, there's <laughs> there's a lot of hours behind that, and there's, yeah, there's a yeah. reason why this. And what are you doing in those hours between when you don't know how to do it and when you do know how to do it? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Well, yeah. mostly, if you're like me, you're thinking you suck. You are terrible <laughs> at this. You are you are the worst. What is wrong with you? You moron! Oh my god! And then you you keep cutting. You keep cutting. And if you over yeah overcome those voices sometimes skill emerges sometimes so that's that's one of the things so thank thank you to mike um before that i was pretty much a router guy that was router and table saw guy that was all i did but mike showed me some hand tool skills and i skills and i fell in love with that so uh well you've given away the big question i wanted to ask at the end but let's address it now okay yesterday i was at a craft show showing off my wares, which nobody was buying because hmm, nobody likes me. Um, <laughs> you suck. And, right. And the woman came up to me and talked to me. Oh, my whole family is so talented. They do so. My, my sister's a, a glass artist and my brother's a woodworker. And, and I just, I just never, I know I'm, I, and I said, well, why not? Why hmm. didn't you, hmm. you know, if the rest of your family was interested in, so you obviously had the opportunity she said, oh, I, I just never had the time. I, I, I said, well, okay, well, pause for a minute. What about not having the time? She said, I don't have the patience. I don't have the patience for it. And I thought, okay, patience for it, but go further. And right there, what you described to me, Tim, mm. was that overcoming of the lack of patience. And so many things. I mean, consider how many thousands of hours we all spend watching television. We oh, could be masters of 12 different trades. We could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, with the true. amount of time that we you spend the amount of time you you gain a mastery in something. But how do you overcome that? What, what was it that got you to overcome that? You can oh, kind of dovetail like go. a champ. So where is that? What, there you that? go. That's the question. Ah, I yeah. like that question. I like that question a lot. And I'll tell you, for me, um, this is something I've thought a lot about because there are other areas of my life where I didn't overcome, you know what I mean? Like, yes, I, I, you know, I was like, well, same here. Why didn't it work on that? You know, like, and here's the thing. I was a very cerebral uh, woodworker and, and I was a very cerebral carpenter. I had the vision of what kind of carpenter I wanted to be yep. before I ever sunk a nail. I knew based on the people that I'd met. And these were people, real live people. And of course it's my impression of them and it's my reading of their work and things like that. But I had a drive. Um, well, one, I wanted to impress Mike, you know, Mike, ah. he's, he's a really great guy. So that relationship, I think that's one big part of it. If yeah, if you have somebody who you're kind of, I don't want to say it's accountability so much as it's really, it's really about building that relationship. Like, because when I did that, Mike was like, oh, okay. Well, since you did that, let me show you this. And that, you know, I don't know if Toshio Date or some of these other guys could tell us more about the whole Japanese apprenticeship program. But I mean, <laughs> that's kind of like, you know, there's the big joke about him about, you know, when he bought that. Remember that, dear Strother? He brought the, he bought that uh, that um, block plane and he wasn't mm. supposed to have it. And his dad came along and found it 
and he's like, you, you don't deserve this or something like that. And he took <laughs> it. It was really nice. And you never saw it again. You know? So what I'm getting at is like, there's, there's levels of reveal that go on in that relationship. And uh, I think it's actually yeah. really important. So that's one aspect. The other aspect was, um, was maintaining a certain amount of love for the material. Um, yeah. I love wood. I've always been a hiker and a backpacker. I've loved, I love the material itself. So I think there has to be something that, and I bet Tim um, from the previous interview, he loved glass. He probably loved yes. the, you know, the, the artistic aspect. He even probably loved his, his crazy chemical concoctions that he had to put together. <laughs> he probably, that, yes. my guess is that most artists have some sort of love affair with the medium that they're working in. So yeah. I think it was those two things. It was the relationship and it was the medium that those two things kind of saw me through. Because when I look at the places where I wish I'd been better at things, I was like, ah, I didn't have either of those. Um, so ah. that's, ah. that's my guess. That's my yeah. guess. That's fascinating. The social aspect of learning, uh, who you're working with and what you were growing a relationship with Mike there. Yeah, so I can see that being a but not just a, 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 you know, conversation over cocktails kind of relationship where you're always talking about the weather, but right. a deep understanding of something. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I get that. We start with our, our those we look up to. I, I very much feel that. We look up to them. We go, wow, you do an amazing thing. I want to be a part of your mental life, so to speak. I want to mm -hmm. be able to talk to you on the level that you have insight to. But that other aspect of why would, why not some other material or why any material at all? Where did the love of wood come from, you felt? That's why right. why don't you become a knitter right right exactly why not um i think it really is deeply connected to my own um upbringing you know my i had um i had yeah. two interesting grandfathers um and and grandparents i should say my grandfather of my uh, grandfather sam's was the dean of engineering at clemson university he was a very yeah. successful man he was also a, a woodworker extraordinaire and he loved uh, building things he was he was kind of a renaissance man and i bet he was probably kind of a hard guy for my dad to grow up under like basically he could do anything you know like that was pretty, pretty amazing and then my other grandfather was a sawmill operator had a second grade education and he ran a sawmill from the day he uh, was like seven or eight or not he didn't run it when he was seven or eight but he was working at it when he was like really young and around yeah. 10 year old 10 years old i think point being is that I spent more time with the other, with my grandfather um, on my mom's side because my other grandfather died. Um, but in that, mm. I began to see how tools and wood worked. Steel yeah. and wood were big themes in my life growing up. I would go to my grandfather's sawmill and there was one time when he was still there and he said, he took out a file and there was, it was one of those big blades. It was like this big, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like saw blade. <laughs> and he took out a file and he showed me how he actually, every, every morning he would file those teeth. Yeah, yeah. And there was something about that, that, that just resonated with me. And I think it's because of the materials. It was feeling part of the earth and that type of thing. I was also, as I got older, I was in Boy Scouts and I, and I started to, to spend a lot of time in the woods and there was just the trees had always been something uh, been you know part of me you know be, my experience and so i think you know when they when you when they die when you use them or when you take harvest them um you want to do it responsibly you want to do it with in some ways i i don't want to get too frothy about this because i'm not a religious <laughs> person in this way but i mean 
I do believe that, you know, being honest with the, the materials is really important. You know, um, it's, uh, it's be able to, to, uh, to give some, uh, I don't know, I struggle. I've seen some things that you've done on like on your website. They're just absolutely beautiful. Like they really honor the wood, like especially oh, in those kind of you. live edge things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, that's the kind of thing that I was always striving for. So I think that actually fueled a little bit of that, that part about the materials that, you know, huh. I don't want to screw up this piece of wood because, you know, it's important. To me. <laughs> now I'm not going to go throwing a, a, you know, block plane across the, the, the way if that happens, but I mean, I, that's, yeah. I don't know. we'll see, we'll see that, that that's, that's results for me. So, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious, two things strike me. Uh, one is just how social your interest in the material is, hmm. um, that it came from a context. You didn't just see a board lying in the middle of the street mm -hmm. and go, oh, that's beautiful. It was part of your family. Yeah. And and you saw the interaction with the material as well, as mm -hmm. well as the, the the term that you use of honesty. And that that's oh god I can, we could probably spend years of the philosophy <laughs> on that question of honesty of the honesty of the materials why why can't it why can't the materials be dishonest I mean we put stain <laughs> on them all the time what is it but that quality <laughs> it's an inadequate word but it does <laughs> it's an inadequate word but it still speaks to something that I think we feel hmm. uh, about uh, about it. Um, the uh, over the I, I I get quite snotty sometimes when mm. and unfairly snotty and I I I, I it, try to be only snotty to myself about it when a, when a, a customer asks about a, the stain that's going to be put on the wood and I feel oh no I feel unclean I don't want to put a stain on the wood I want to choose a wood that that speaks to what they want it's like don't yeah. make maple dark oh. use a dark wood. Um, and it's an utter snottiness in a um oh i share that snottiness i share that completely. i mean like give me linseed oil and that's it buddy i mean like is yes. everything that i've done for me personally has linseed oil on it that's i just don't do anything else i think it's silly otherwise but yeah, yeah, yeah. i get what i get what you're talking about yeah right but it, it's the snottiness it, 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 carrying that further it's the other social aspect i'm talking to someone who doesn't know uh, who doesn't have the same experience or background, they're not working from the same, if they knew what I knew, I'm sure they'd agree with me, kind of a, <laughs> kind of a thing, of you'll be so much happier if you understand the, you know, really connect with the material in the way that, that I feel that I do for many oh, years of, of experience with it. Man. But that education curve is, is tough, especially when they're, uh, when they come up with an attitude like, oh, this is really dark. Well, <laughs> what kind of stain do you use? No, that, that's not. I know all wood is white. All the wood I've ever seen is white. What stain do you use? I, I don't use the stain. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're lying to me, mister. And they got that attitude. And, oh, but, but I mean, oh, so the real question, though, Struther, is this. Would they? Would they now, would they really understand things well if you were able to, if you were able to stop them talking for two minutes yeah. and get them to understand the things the way you see it, would they really see it the way we're talking about? <laughs> or does it take actually a longer experience with these things? I don't know. I mean, I, you and I haven't actually oh. talked about this, about you, your experience with wood, you know, but I think we're kind of tracking the same way. I mean, I know 
there's a deep yeah. honesty you have with your materials. I know that for a fact, but I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know where it comes from, but for me, it's coming from that kind of stuff. It may be the same with you. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a fascinating question. Cause of course it's an arrogance to say, sure. of course, you're going to believe exactly what I believe if you knew what I knew. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to have that arrogance, of course, but I'd like to think that, and it's not just you know, five minutes of convincing them. It would be, right. you need to have had the same experiences throughout all of your life. Right. And then we'll come to marvelously different interpretations and different opinions. Of course we will, because we're different people and that there's glorious, but then there's that dialogue that I think you were, you know, in every learning process with the material that you were aiming for with Mike. The ability to talk to someone from a from a level of knowledge, where you come away respecting their opinion because it's informed, and it's informed and it's different and it's glorious. And I would love to have endless discussions of with uh, someone who does use stains, who has fifty years of staining, and you know, Jeff Jewett, say Jeff Jewett, yeah, master exactly. That's what I was thinking, master yeah. stain, all of this, and yeah, and, um, well, and he might actually have the same kind of feeling towards you and I as we have about the person who, you know I mean? He might be like, oh, silly men, you know, like what's wrong with you? Uh, let, me, let me tell you, let me tell you about the, the benefits of, of uh, dark stains. Right. Exactly. So, It'd say you just have a prejudice. And I think I'd have to admit that, yeah, I do have a prejudice. And it's largely because whenever I use a stain, I mess things up. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's why you hate that one saw. Remember that one saw, like every time you yes. cut with it, like it's, ah, I always screw it up with that saw. I don't know what's up. <laughs> yes, that there with the, it's the Japanese saw with all the broken teeth on it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Because um, I've learned how to cut on the push and not on the pull. And <laughs> every time I try to cut on the push with that damn thing. So it is endlessly broken and often in one corner of the shop, but we are, we are creatures right. of habit over time. Yeah. Um, well, to stay on track, the, the yeah. first question I wanted to ask after what kind of work do you do, what do you love about your work? Excellent. Excellent. So um, I was going to answer this in a couple different ways. Um, first of all, I wanted to tell you about what I loved about being a carpenter. Yes. Which, well, by the way, it changed. You get to choose what work you talk about. Yeah, yeah. It changed over seven years. I ah. So... I, I was 37 years old when I started as a carpenter, which is like ancient, you know, everyone on the job <laughs> thought that I was, the, was the lead carpenter because I was 37 years old. Yeah. Yep. I didn't know Jack. And, um, and on top of it all, it's 37 year old body compared to these kids who are 20 years old. They're like throwing two by four or eight, you know, four yeah. by eight plywood <laughs> up on the roof. And they're like, we, you know, and having a great time walking around on top of the ridge, like, yeah. like, uh, like, uh, Alpinus. Um, so the first three years of my, uh, being a carpenter, I, what did I love about it? I loved that I was doing it. Yep. I had actually been wanting to do this for the longest time. I loved the fact that when I got to the job, I could get to work and not feel like an idiot, which is what I didn't feel for the previous 20 years of my life, you know, huh. and, and everything. And here's the thing is when you have, I have probably some I'm, I'm generation x so we don't we didn't do adhd back then but i'm sure that i've got some sort of adhd thing kind of going on so yeah i approach the job and one of the reasons i didn't uh, last at taunton was because i was terrible at deadlines i was you know i was awful i had i had a great tenure there on one hand and it was an absolute disaster on another so yeah 
Um, and I'm happy to, that's, with all that, that's water under the bridge. But I mean, the point is, is that um, on the job site, I had, I loved the fact that I could get to it. I could see what it is I was going to work on and I could actually get working. Um, yeah. And that is a really important aspect of satisfaction in my book. Um, and it was one of the things that I didn't have in the previous 20 years of work um, was not having that Curious. groundedness. The other thing I liked about it is I just loved using, um, I love solving problems, using tools to solve problems. I loved absolutely the process of it. Um, yeah, so those are those are the big things. Neat. And now your work as marketing director. What do you yeah. love about that work? Well, I'm glad, you know, it's interesting. I was remember when you and I were talking about this interview, I was like, hey, do you, how do you want me to answer this? And I don't know how much <laughs> this would actually, but maybe there's people out there that are listening to this that are also white collar workers like myself and um, are going to do this. So hopefully this will actually speak to them as well. But one of the things I love about my job is actually working with my team, getting my team to actually do things mm. together. I have a small staff and um, getting them, getting their ideas. They're all under they're 30 and under or a little bit under around 30 and under and um, just watching them um, solve problems and that type of thing. And basically my job is to stir the pot and actually guide. So that's one of the things I love. Um, it's probably the, the chief thing that I love about what I do. It's interesting though. The work itself is intellectually interesting. So I do like that. Um, if it wasn't intellectually interesting, I wouldn't be in it. I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The challenge is posed to uh, create a simulation that really does solve a problem for the students rather than something that feels like, uh, I don't know, a, a basic Sudoku. There you go. You, basic Sudoku. Yes, that's good. Where you wander through. So here's a here's some a, a, a question about those two questions. Sure. Do you see in the pleasures of being of having been a carpenter of the problem solving the tangible nature of the of uh, the the soffit has to go up today. How are we going to do those returns, those corners, or whatever it is, versus what you love in your current job? Is there overlap? Hmm. There is. And I, you know, I was thinking about this and how to articulate it. Um, I remember when I started this job, April, 2010, I remember thinking, God, just a week ago for lunch, I was sitting on a five gallon bucket in a dusty um, work site, eating yeah. lunch out of a pail. And now I'm at a desk, everything's clean. Um, and that type of thing. How strange it is that I'm how different are those two worlds? Mm. What's fascinating to me, though, is that a job site is typically made up of a group of characters. And one of the things that's <laughs> really a lot of fun is actually oh, yes. the characters that you have on job sites, the plumbers, the electricians, the carpenters and all that kind of stuff. And what's fascinating is carpenters have a certain personality about them. They have like, the joke is like, you get any three carpenters in the room and they'll tell you three different ways to solve the problem. And they're all convinced it's right. You know, like yep. none of them will ever agree. Well, people in the office are a lot the same. So there's overlap in that. What I'm getting at is like the day-to-day the -day working with people doesn't really change. You yeah. might drop more F-bombs on a job site, but you're not <laughs> going to dis... Which, by the way, you've got to be careful when you go to the other thing that you don't do that, which I actually Oops. have a problem yeah. with. Anyway, the point is, is that, yeah, you're going to actually... The, the translation is, is people are people. 
And, yep. you know, I, I remember when I was actually for a period of time, I had to oversee our development department. Long story why, but, I, uh, who, you know, whose idea was it to put the marketing guy in charge of development? I don't know. No, I'm joking with that. But I mean, the point <laughs> is, is like it was it was something that I had to do for a little bit. And one of the things I noticed, the programmers were very similar to carpenters. They were very process oriented. They were very much about building structure. And if you didn't mm. set the foundation correctly, they would they would flip out. Because you're like, how can we build anything on top of this? You know, it's going to fall down. And I was like, wow, you guys are just like carpenters. This is really interesting. to me. So, yeah, there was overlap there. Cool. Well, it's curious you, you talk about structure. Um, I've been doing some reading on early humans and what they mm -hmm. did with their hands and absolutely fascinating things. But the the sort of the consensus on what makes us unique as toolmakers is that uh, and also our thought process itself, which is language itself, is that it's sequential. Tool making requires an order. Certain things have to come before other things. Mm. And, only, and then other things have to come after other things. Mm. And it, it, this is the kind of uh, sort of thinking that you can apply to everything in life. <laughs> before you get in the car, you have to open the door. Um, all of those before you, <laughs> you have to get out of bed before you put your pants on. Um, every single process we have that's complex has this must come before, that comes next, that comes next, that comes next. And uh, a fair number of the eggheads in the books I've been reading argue that it's a combination uh, between uh, mental processes that we, we, we grew into. Uh, that the tool making, our capacity to make tools led us to the ability to have thoughts that are sequential and our ability to have thoughts that are sequential um, in times and, and you know, so that you remember each piece of it. As Dave points out, dogs have a memory of about 1.3 seconds. We can create a sentence that can go on for many minutes, even though we hate people to do that. Um, and it's all a sequence. It's a sequence of thoughts. And so in tool making too, that this underlies everything we do is hmm. the sequential thinking. Tool making, um, using the tools that you've just made to make other tools uh, and everything we make is a tool. Everything we make is, is some aspect of our, of our, um, hmm. of our uh, survival, toward our survival or our enjoyment, which is also toward survival. But so that so many an argument is that pretty much everything you do is a form of tool making from this foundational sense on a job site. You know that you got to pour the foundation before you can put up the, the walls. Duh. Yeah. And the roof comes last. And the very last thing is you roll up the the uh, the, the protection on the carpet. And so the same in a business, too. <laughs> You've got to find, you know, this has to happen before that has to happen. And I'm sort of rambling a bit. But that sequential nature in, in between the two, I forget. What am I getting at? Tim, tell me. I think that I wondered if you were connecting that when you were when I was telling you the idea about the programmers and how they needed that structure in order for the programming to work effectively. Yes. And my understanding that they're very much like carpenters. I was one of the things I was going to get at was that um, early on, the first three years, and, that, and my, my period as a carpenter definitely had kind of like periods. But the first three years was me just playing catch up for the last 37 years, you know, 
And I would, I would go home. Um, I would have to do crown molding the next day, which was something I love to do. I was a woodworker. So I was like, oh, I should, you know, I should be able to do miters and inside miter and all that kind of stuff. But I was having to do cope. And what, it, what I was thinking about was what was most frustrating to me was not knowing the process. Like mm. what, what, what uh, piece uh, do you start first with? Right. Starting cope, right. you know, and why? And, you know, it's, and, and, you know, the answer typically in trim is actually, it depends on how the room is situated and when you're, where you enter the room and what are you going to see when you first do that and all that kind of stuff. And so you bring the three carpenters back in and you're going to get three different answers. Well, that's true too. Yeah. But <laughs> what I'm getting at is like, so that's all great. But then what, it, what about actually cutting the cope itself? We don't have four hours for Tim to cut one cope. You know, it, yep. it, this had to happen. So I would actually go home with scrap material and practice coping after get the kids to bed and everything like that and get everything all settled in the house i would go outside onto and and to a sawhorse and practice copes and what i'm getting at is like that to me is connected to the thing i was telling you before about mm. the thing i did with mike was actually one of the most profound uh game changers for me um yeah. in the sense like it changed my life it, it changed my life because it developed a pattern of that structure that you're talking about yeah yeah um to give me a way to develop skill and to develop and and, and to, to actually flourish you know which is ultimately yeah. what you're getting at here i mean yes. really you're asked you're one of the things i like about your project is you're actually really talking about eudaimonia you, you really want to yes. talk about flourishing what does flourishing really look like and um so anyway that that's what i got from what you were saying there is like you're that's what you're going with uh, yes. <laughs> Was that true? Precisely. Thank you. <laughs> but often we have to speak. Well, we often have to talk our way through to understand what we Maybe mean. Maybe so. <clears throat> yeah. as, with, uh, as with many things in life. <laughs> so that, and that process is the learning process, which gets back to that question of the professional uh, who said she didn't have the time, she didn't have the yeah. patience. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that patience overcoming, because there, there are so many rewards to the simple masteries we have in life, mm. uh, and we are so capable of them. Mm. Uh, and everyone I meet who says they're done with their hands, and that's a fair number of people, and they don't. Uh, yeah. I, I, I point out to them, it was uh, what Ian Kirby brought up at a demonstration. He says, everybody's smart with their hands. If you can brush your teeth, you have amazing hand skills. Because you don't think about it, you go, and you you've taken a a hard plastic object and moved it around your mouth without injury, without and, injury. Uh, and you ever watched and, a kid brush their teeth? I mean, exactly. that's the thing. Like, it's, yeah, it's 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 not as easy as you think. So, well, try brushing your teeth with a hand you're not don dominant hand. Try that. <laughs> Precisely, and then you realize you've become a master of a skill of a very important and thought skill and to your uh, to your other point about muscle memory we do not think about we do not control our hand so to speak with mm. our, with our thoughts we're not actively saying all right move it back but not all the way or i'm going to jam it in my no and bring it forward and, and then we're <laughs> going to take this curve we're going to take this curve around the incisor none of that's conscious it's all like riding a bicycle that you just that's do cool. it that's cool. Um, and that's actually what I would get at. And I might be jumping to the jumping the gun here to what you were trying to talk about. But I, I would say that flourishing comes from the practice of muscle memory 
uh, ah. and, and you know make it quote unquote oh. making it look easy yeah. i don't think the true craftsperson really sees themselves as making it look easy i don't think they ever i don't i don't think i ever got to the end of doing something that i've done a million times and thinking well that was easy i never right. felt that i was just like okay i'm glad <laughs> or that yeah that that'll do you know that'll do that that looks good that's good good or you know good enough um but the point is is that but there is satisfaction in that when i put it up it fits and that to me is is just a microcosm of kind of what you're talking about when yeah. it comes to whether it's you're a chef or you're a mechanic or you're um, a, a glass blower or whatever else. I think that's actually what where I would latch on to say, yes, Struther, I agree. That's actually that is eudaimonia. That is where you are coming into a place of um, real honest satisfaction. Yeah. Well, as marketing director, when you make a sale of your software to an organization and you know in your heart that that's a great fit, just yes. as much of a fit as the coach molding and you go, yes. Is that's that true. a similar? Is that's that true. Similar it's funny. You know, I'm, I'm glad you, that's an interesting point. I have um, a conversation with a customer who's been, I've been talking to for uh, since 2010 when I started. And um, she tells me about like what she's up to. She's one of the best people at integrating our Sims into her class that I know of. And, um, and then there's another guy, he, he's like the best guy. So I, man and woman, two different people, but obviously, and I'm talking to both of those people right now. And basically what I, I do have so much satisfaction. I pointed so many people to them so that people could yeah. actually get into that. So yes, to me, that's where it's, it's, it's both the material, but then also the people, those things have to be, yes, that's where I find my satisfaction. That's where I find my flourish. So, yeah. So there's a lot of similarities because as you point out, it's still people no matter yeah. where we are or largely what we're doing. I think so. Um, right. I, okay. I have got a, um, a an outrageous statement. Okay. Which is that um, our concept of creativity, hmm. this the creative process that's quite mysterious. You know where where does Picasso produce Guernica? Uh, where does Einstein come out with uh, general relativity? Uh, where does Leonardo da Vinci come out with, I don't know, the Mona Lisa, this mysterious creative process. Here's the outrageous statement, statement that it is absolutely no different whatsoever than the problem solving that any of us do in daily life. From the electrician figuring out how to wire a house, from you figuring out how to uh, unfreeze a lock in your car because it's 20 degrees out this morning mm -hmm. to any of that. It is precisely the same process. And the, the only difference is that Picasso has posed himself the question of how to express this horrible uh, atrocity in the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, Einstein has posed to himself, why is it that if I imagine myself falling in an elevator it's no different than gravity, hmm. acceleration and all of that, or any of these, or how the hell is that, that lock going to unfreeze? Um, or what am I going to cook tonight for dinner? This is all the same process. Is that an outrageous statement? No, 
I love no, this. Oh, I on. love this. I love this. And but it is an outrageous statement because I think most people would be go what? No, I mean I think we have a tendency to think of um I so I you wouldn't have known this and I'm glad you didn't know this about me but I'm I'm flipping out excited about that what you just said there because I do see that when I was a carpenter one of the things so I, I had this white collar career you know before I came to fine woodworking and then I was this you know blue collar guy working you know alongside with guys who had basically they they had all they all thought I was like a college graduate with a you know master's degree or something like that and I was I worked for the I worked for fine woodworking <laughs> magazine Ooh, yes. you know and they just thought that I was like some snob and what they came to realize when they got to know me was like oh they actually he's he's just the same as us what they a lot of these guys were all about was that they didn't have any other idea about what they could do with life so they became a carpenter yes and it's one of the biggest tragedies I ever saw and one of the things I felt particularly prideful about in my experience with that was that I was able to show them like, Hey guys, is this not the coolest freaking job ever? We're working on a three and a half million dollar house. I'm putting up mahogany trim. The stack of wood I'm working with is worth more than I make in a year. You know, like that, that, that stack of wood is, is more than I'm paid all year long. Um, and and I have to be really careful with it and all that kind of stuff. What, what I'm getting at is like, isn't this cool? I was able to affect that with about three guys that I worked with. And yeah. they actually, um, they, they, they're still carpenters. They're still doing it. And, and, and two of them were Latino. Um, and, and they really just embody that. What I'm getting at is like, they were able to get that, that kind of what you're talking about there, that like, it's sort of a mindset. Like you just kind of put yourself in those positions. Like I think Einstein put himself in the position to solve that problem because he kept asking the questions that got yeah. him to the point. And he had, he had the brilliance of the, you know, his capacity for math and all that kind of stuff. And Picasso, sure. the same thing. He put himself in those positions to paint the way he did because he was like, okay, this is working. You know, like this, this is expressing uh. what I want to express. I think the same for the skilled tra the, the the craftsperson. I think they yeah. they have to constantly push themselves and put themselves in uncomfortable positions because yeah. that actually ends up leading them to see new ways of expressing. And and then once in a while, it's freaking brilliant. You know, like it, it comes <laughs> out and it's it's absolutely amazing. Now, most of the time, it's okay. You know, it's it's not it's it's. That's fine. You know, it's better than, you know, mama could do or anybody else. I mean, it could, it's better than anybody else could do. But I mean, the point sure. is, is that that to me, that's why I like that statement so much. Ted, on that, on that issue of, of creativity and problem solving, you've done, you've problem solved on job sites, you've problem solved as a director, and you agree mm -hmm. with the idea that creativity and problem solving. But do you consider yourself a creative person? Wow. Well, great, Strother. I didn't realize this was a therapy session. Um, I <laughs> no, it's not at all. I'm just no, I don't consider myself a ther uh, creative person. That's creative a funny person, thing. No. It's like that's why I'm saying it's a therapy session. I, I, I don't. I think there's a certain amount of like I can't say that. You know, like yes. I can't. Yes. It's almost a little bit too. Um, no, and it's I, almost but, but that's the thing. Yeah, it, too it, arrogant for me. Yeah, for me, not for others. Yes, but I mean, yes. So I, I just can't, I can't go there. I and I, I honor greatly those people who yes. can say that, and do say that. But nah, nah, I can't say that. No. And it's it's true. I think create creativity carries a 
a weight about it that is really presumptuous. Mm-hmm. That even if Picasso were to say, I'm a creative person, you'd feel like, oh, stop it. Um, well, maybe not. We'd say, yeah, yeah, you've proven it. But anybody who isn't as famous, an artist or other, you would feel that's a presumption to say there's something very special, sort of mm-hmm. top shelf about creativity. And yet at the same time, we all problem solve. So mm-hmm. are we creative? Are we coming up with solutions of course we're we're Absolutely. all creative yeah and that perhaps part of my um uh quest here is to make creativity accessible to anybody and everybody so mm. it becomes as simple as picking up a stick off the ground um yeah you're you're creative you are creative and once you allow that you're no longer doing something so petty with your life you're doing something grand and beautiful as we hmm. as we all are and i think the, i think the mastery gives us that semi permission to say that yes i have proven to myself i am capable here other people i mean i i, I didn't sell much yesterday but i got a lot of people coming up saying oh this is so lovely this is so pretty we can we can earn the compliment and say well thanks yeah thanks are you sure you don't want to buy it no you don't want it in your house i get it i understand it's it's not that good but uh, (laughs) but attaining that skill set where you can create something you can admit to yourself yeah i i created that you don't Mm -hmm. consider yourself creative but you have you've you've done enough problem solving to make something of value Mm -hmm. so which you have to admit that you've done in your life you you've done a lot of creative problem solving and you've created a lot of wonderful things from houses to um yep. magazines to uh boxes gardening magazines as well as as right. uh, as woodworking magazines and, mm-hmm. and in your in your uh, capacity as marketing director as well mm-hmm. but we still don't allow ourselves that you know, that, um, you know, Strother, I think what maybe I'm getting at is that it, it, creativity is is a is a trait that is hard for me to say to pinpoint in the same uh, like, like that it's almost like a cake that's just never baked completely baked yeah. you know it's like that's what i'm saying it's like so but 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 do i not when i'm like when i, I just thinking about this morning when i was i was sitting down and i'm working on something for a project for for my team and i was thinking about different aspects of it and i was pretty happy with it i was like oh wow i'm looking at it this way and i'm looking at it this way and my goal every time I sit down is actually how do I think about this differently, which is creativity. I mean, that's yes. that's what I mean. So absolutely, the the goal is always to be creative. Um, yeah, maybe that's what it is. It's just like I don't know that I I'll, I would ever say that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> maybe it's something I would rather someone ascribed to me, you know, at a, at a at a booth like you were at or something like that. You're right. Well, it, it's social suicide to go into a cocktail. Hello, <laughs> I'm a creative person. How are you? I put that on my business card. <laughs> well, it's one thing I didn't bring up with Tim Hockstetter, but on his business card, he he, he has Tim Hockstetter Supermaker. Does he? He does. And oh, it's, I like that. It's brilliant from a from a a, a whole like bunch of perspectives. It's it's jokingly assertive but true. Mm. Because he is a super maker, he does. He makes all sorts of things with all yeah, sorts cool. of of medium, um, and uh, it's self-effacingly presumptive. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. that even makes 
<laughs> any he, sense oh he his 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 uh demeanor is is extremely uh, i wouldn't even say um I don't, I don't even know how to peg him and i don't think he can be pegged but i mean what, what well, a fascinating guy he was because yeah the creativity just oozes from every conversation yeah, you have yeah. with him but at the same time he's extremely accessible and i think maybe yeah. that's actually the concern it's like when you when you are that are is is being creative make you inaccessible and that to me is actually the biggest sin right ah, there, inaccessible yeah. yeah yes well to the this a lot of what we've talked about has pointed to the social aspects of all mm. of our work um working with people um learning from people and the creativity we have that sense that this is a very solo kind of a thing the genius goes away off to come up with these incredible uh we we think of einstein alone we think of leonardo alone we think of picasso alone um that it does push you off into this realm where you're on your own and i don't think that's true i don't know how mm -hmm. picasso or any any of these people mm -hmm. worked but it wasn't alone mm -mm. Mm -mm. In, in any in any way or other not one bit nope <clears throat> Uh, and, and not uh, even you know that's not even thinking about the spouses of of these people um i i think that there's yes, a, to begin there's with. a tremendous amount of um creativity comes from a vibrant relationship um exactly. and simply because you feel a certain amount of agency to do that uh, what i will say is that there's also um a little bit about uh the struggle um, but I think that's actually kind of what you learn when you're cutting lines, learning how to cut dovetails. You mm. learn actually to to quiet that voice that says you're a moron, you're an idiot, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, look, that was terrible. You're never going to do this. Oh, my God. You did that again? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. It's that voice. If you can quiet that voice or yeah. simply just yeah. simply turn it off, um, yeah. then you're yeah. actually you're onto something. Yeah. Yes. Turning it off, quieting, living with it. Um, perhaps realizing it's part of the process and that it's a, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's like rain on a, on a, on a day. It just happens. It's, mm -hmm. you can't say no to it, but yeah. How, how do you get prep that? How do you persist through that? Um, and you spoke, I thought quite, um, quite well and, and beautifully about how it's toward your relationship with Mike. There's the payoff mm -hmm. from this that yeah you just you just keep going because you want something that's at the end there it's not a hollow process it's not a, a waste of time it's not a right. a sense that there's you know you're you're just doing you're just showing yourself you're an idiot a thousand times over in a shop <laughs> to no other end than realizing that you're an idiot with a saw which that's right which you aren't and and all of that um well, it's not unlike riding a motorcycle too, which is something that you oh, talked so much about. Um, yes, yes. For the first 10,000 miles that I rode, again, I felt like it was those first three years as a carpenter, felt like those first couple months cutting lines. It's yeah. always nothing that's been important to me as a skill has ever come easy. Never. Yeah. I, I haven't, not once yeah. have I had anything like, oh, well, I'm a natural at that. Nope, that's not Tim. Uh, Tim is the guy who's actually going to be <laughs> freaking out as he's driving his motorcycle going. And for some reason, right hand curves were always my thing that just bothered yeah, me. Yeah. And it wasn't until, I, Strother, I don't know if I've ever told you this. It uh, wasn't until you kind of beat into my head um, the uh, concept. And this is actually applicable, I think, to this other concept. You tell me. 
of, of target fixation. And ah. the concern that I was having was where was my eyes? Where were my yeah. eyes? And yeah. my eyes were not necessarily up on the curve ahead. They were actually looking at that car. And I'm like, I don't want to hit that car. <laughs> and you're like, right. you're going to hit that car. Yeah. You yeah. made this point to me. And so did another guy, a guy named Yaniv, who um, yeah. power plant motorcycles in Hollywood. And um, I got a chance to meet him and chat with him. And he really kind of pounded that into me. It changed my life. And what I'm getting at is I think that there's a certain thing about, so with riding a motorcycle, it's oh, your cool, cool. likelihood you're going to die. Um, so that, so <laughs> yes. that's when you're practicing is what I'm saying. When you're practicing, you're going to die. You're not going to die when you're cutting lines. I <laughs> think, but still the point is the fear is, is still around is sharp tools. tools. Yes, yes, exactly. It's similar. There's a similar fear. Yes. And that, yes. What, if you keep focusing on the things that you're doing wrong and that, you know, that voice in your head, that's focusing on the curve or that's focusing yes. on the car. You're, that's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it was the same thing. And that, that all kind of came about to me when I was writing. And so now it's not a problem, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's a cool, cool analogy and, and glad to help with your motorcycle riding. Thank you. Sir. Um, I personally remember it and it was from a poster of, uh, that I had in my shop of a yes, motorcycle this is what rider. you shared with me. Tell me, tell them about it. Yeah. Carl. Yeah. Carl Fogarty. And he's going around a curve, you know, on a super bike. And that, that bike looks like it's lying on the ground. It's like, how did he get down so far? <laughs> and I'm looking at his, his body language and it, the photograph shows his, he's got these crystal clear blue eyes hmm. and his neck and his head is in the absolute opposite direction of where that bike is pointing because he's looking around the curve on the other side. Yes. And there was a piercing stare in his eye. And just that body language, right? Oh my God. So of course I want to be like my hero. Next time I'm out on the bike, I get out and I just say, well, fuck it. If I die, I die. I'm yes. going to go around a curve and I'm not yeah. going to look where I'm going. I'm going to stretch my head. Holy shit. I'm going so far down. How did I do that? I'm going so much faster. This is easy. <laughs> and that, that bizarre sort of where you do, yeah, you get out of, out of that staring at the problems and staring at the solutions. Mm. Um, is is absolutely key, but it's mm. curious. I'd never thought of of woodworking in that in that regard of mm. staring at where you want the line to go, mm. um, and just just doing it that way rather than oh, you know, <laughs> if I if I saw it near that bolt, I'm going to break the blade. <laughs> oh shit! Of course I did, um, and broke wow. all the teeth on it. But yeah, that same that same staring at the at the obstacle. Uh, yeah, no motorcycle ride. This I think this is why all the all the great books on motorcycle riding get, you know, sort of they be you become philosophical about life because there's so many great solutions. You do that getting out of your head on a bike. What I was going to tie um, tie that to the woodworking part of it is that it's more the voices. The problem with the motorcycling, the problem with you on the motorcycle is your voice. Your head is ta- doing too much talking, and you're yeah. not paying you're not using your eyes and you're not using your your arms to to you know counter steer that's the problem and i think with woodworking that's actually the problem sometimes too after a certain point now i'm not talking about when you first start but i mean when you're really trying to hone your skill i think you need to learn how to turn off that voice i had a similar experience with you on the motorcycle where I, i was like okay 
all right, fine. All right, I'll give this a whirl. There was a time I was coming into a curb. It was up on the uh, Shenandoah National Park Skylines Drive, and I was coming in way too fast. Yep. And I thought, I'm screwed. And so I just <laughs> basically looked up to the right, and somehow the bike went that way. Yeah. Point yeah. being is like, yeah, this it is a magical experience. And I think you have to have magical experiences like that to keep you going in this. So again, going back yes. to the woodworking, I really yes. think it's important for you to to learn how to control that voice in your head. So that's yes. the, yeah, yeah. To argue it down, it can become a passenger. We'll always have it with us, but it, to get its hands off the steering, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that you do make that magical curve where suddenly you realize that you've been well within your envelope of skill mm. and feeling that you're at the, at the, at the boundaries at the edges, but no, those boundaries are really quite far away. Yeah. And when you throw yourself into that curve and you swear you're going to die and you come out of it the other side, you know, fine. You're you go, Ooh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Magic. Yeah. Just the, the magic that I'm capable of just taught me of the more magic that I am capable of. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Which, getting back to your Einstein thing, I think Einstein and Picasso actually put themselves in those positions enough that when they get to that point where they get to the, the crux of where they're possibly going to solve yes. that problem, they're ready. They're ready. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's curious. I, I, I've not found that many good descriptions of creative people about their creative process, hmm. um, whether they don't like to talk about it or they hmm. do. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a really bad researcher. <laughs> I haven't found them. But when they when they they are around, they're really quite boring. People say, "Well, I you know I just sat down and I I thought of this and I painted this." Like, no, no, there's more to it. There there is, and I think you're touching on something that has to be going on. Mm -hmm. They have to be quieting those voices because they're human beings. They're not they're not aliens without those voices of doubt in their head and those distractions and Hmm. focusing on the problems and worrying about rent um and all of that so at, at what point and but that that process isn't conscious they don't have that in their their verbal the verbal part of their brain uh their process is elsewhere but you know i, I think know. one of the things that's interesting about creative folks is when you do actually get into their biography a little bit you realize that the the summary that you read at the museum a little bio or the little Wikipedia article or something like that that you read about them is so far removed from the fact that they were actually, when they were creating the greatest piece they've ever created, they were currently sleeping on friend's couch or was eating <laughs> green beans for 14 yeah. days straight and had runs, you know, or something. There, there was all these kind of interesting things or their wife had just left them or their husband had just left them or yeah. there was all these things that there's no like pure moment when like, oh, suddenly now everything's creative and I get to be, you know, life is good. All yes. my problems are solved and now I can be creative. No, it never happens that way. It's, it's, it's always yeah, yeah. going to be complicated. Yeah, it's true. That is another myth of creativity that somehow, and I think the whole concept of the writer's retreat is based on this. Hmm. Oh, we'll give you a, a special place to go off for three months where you'll be uncluttered by anything and you'll create great art. And I can't think of anything that I have ever enjoyed reading that has ever come out of a writer's retreat. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. Yeah. It it it, it produced, I don't know what it produces. But... 
where, where you what you want to read is like oh they just went on a five-day bender or they just gave up cocaine or they maybe they right. haven't given up cocaine or maybe they're just like you know they're they're riding in the backseat of a cab for the last four days yes. Yes. that's the stuff where it comes out and that's so funny I mean, it's so funny because I mean, I think it actually in, informs us. It, sh- it doesn't mean we need to go, you know, start with cocaine or anything. But I mean, what it does mean is that perhaps you can you can create where you are. It doesn't have to. St- uh, you know, yes. Have to well, it's a real life activity, and to my mind, we do it anyway. Yeah. Um, we're not capable of not doing it. We have to do it. It's it's the way the human brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then but it's the realizing to get to to uh, uh, eudaimonia, to thriving, to flourishing in life, uh, is the realization that really we're simply stopping ourselves from doing what we naturally do Mm. uh, far more than we're just allowing ourselves to be creative, to make things for other people, the people in our lives, Mm. to be thoughtful in what we do and about what effect it'll have, what solution are we producing or creating for another person. Uh, what are we giving them? How are we contributing to their life? And because by contributing to their life, we're contributing to our own. Mm-hmm. And back to your your um, your place with uh, or your your work with um, with Mike uh, as a student of his. Uh, absolutely, I'm absolutely sure you were giving him great pleasure, tremendous pleasure to work with you to for him to as a teacher to watch you grow and change and improve. Um, there's as it and as as you have taught and i'm sure you know in in, in every other uh situation where you're passing along uh something like that uh there's tremendous satisfaction Hmm. in those that social moment that social activity of um of learning and making that's cool that's cool should we stop here or keep going I'm game either way, Strother. <laughs> I cleared out my rest of my day. You said this was 18 hours, so I'm 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 here, you know. Right. We're in an hour and 20. I'm not sure I should put up much more than an hour and 20 on because no, no, people will be like, my God, my commute well, is certainly yeah, certainly they're not gonna want to listen to this guy. But I mean, yeah, I think it would be interesting <laughs> to see. Yeah. Right. Who, um, yeah. who listens to who listens to this? That is it. Well, there the, the whole question of who who on earth is going to listen to this. <laughs> I I have no idea. I have no clue. Um, I can't wait to find out who who it is that does because I can think of just I I can think of the broad uh, broadly widely available to a lot of people. I can see a lot of people getting into this. So I hope so at least. Yep, I hope so too as well. Um, well, I don't know. I get this uh, sense. I mean, Tim Hoxtetter talked a, a bit about this, and I think he's right that there is a there's a golden a golden period in our our learning. Say, so if to if if I wanted everybody to learn how to knit, it's a couple of of factors. One is you need somebody to knit with. You need mm. that background, mm. uh, the mom, the dad, the whoever it was, which you had with wood in your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need um, also to not have have created sort of a lifetime of prejudices against it that that's that's not mm. me um I'm, I'm not a knitter i can't possibly knit uh, that's for other people and it's very nice but thank you for thinking of me um kind of attitude that that once those without those you know old dogs don't learn new tricks so well and you need a a space or a place so a lot of this is can that be overcome can it really be overcome? Is, is it asking too much to 
try to excite people to work with their hands, make things, find those joys when they never have? Mm. Or is, should this really be a children's book? <laughs> should this really be a 20-page um, uh, illustrated, <clears throat> a maximum of 100 words, and uh, that's how how this 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 good news will be will be spread around. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know it's funny. I will say this, and I know you were th- talking about wrapping up, but I'll just say that there's one aspect that we didn't talk about that I I think is important to everyone's, and it's yeah. sort of identity, um, which uh, actually, interestingly enough, you were getting to um, about this. So I think that. Um, the the message that was told to me for a long time and why carpentry became such a um a balm to my soul um in so many yeah. ways to, to to not overstate it i mean it sounds a little rather precious but i mean it really was yeah. quite a savior for me um but uh, the one of the reasons was that was the identity of that i was uh, so i always thought that my identity was that i was an intellectual that i should be you know like my grandfather i should be going into that i wasn't i knew i wasn't an engineer but i i thought that i would be a college person i wanted to be an english professor or something like that and i was i had some some skills at teaching and things like that but i was a terrible student i flunked out of school twice and (laughs) and so you know the the thing is is that i just kind of kept doing it and even as an entrepreneur i sort of bucked the trend there i, I kind of it was me trying to kind of find my way in the world and find my identity it wasn't until i became a carpenter that i really felt like i had found something that i was doing that was huh. consistent with who i was ah. and i and it took me a long time to figure out what that was i thought well that meant i'm just i should be a carpenter for the rest of my life not hmm. necessarily so what it really meant was that I needed to have some congruency with um, uh, working with the people that I was working with and working with the, the thing that I was working on. I needed to have, um, I needed to believe in what I was doing. I needed to have a certain amount of, uh, um, God, well, I wish I'd thought about this more, but I. No, no. In the, this is the process of understanding. <laughs> This is I need, good. I needed to have a certain amount of confidence. There you go. Confidence that this, what I'm doing is really good. This is cool. You know, this is interesting, um, intellectually interesting, as well as being practically interesting, which, you know, I think we, you know, Tim talked about that a little bit. He talked about, about um, things that were intellectually interesting to him. That's a big thing for me too. Yes. I'm into that. But yes. I'm interested too in the practically interesting thing. Like how does plumbing work? How does an HVAC system work? How does roofing work? How does all this kind of stuff? And I think when you have that kind of practical curiosity, mm. you then actually apply it to the creativity, whether it's knitting or whatever, you know, yes. Yes. HL, yes. whatever yes. else. That's what I'm getting at. Like, I finally made peace with that um, as a carpenter um, and, and, and was able to live it and do it. You know, like every day I was waking up and I was solving problems and things like that. And then I knew for financial reasons, I was like, well, I need to get back into this other work because this will help pay the bills. <laughs> and so yes, I did. Yes. And I was like fortunate that I had that opportunity to do that. But what I'm getting at is like, I could apply yeah, learn the same curiosity to this too. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Curious. Yeah. You, those words, confidence, congruency, identity, believing in what you're doing. Would you say that the, the tangible nature of, of carpentry uh, made it more accessible. Yes, because that that issue comes up quite a bit. 
Yes. When you when a house is complete, it's complete. You can see it there. It's done. Whereas a, a, yeah. a project or that's a PowerPoint that's going to be a proposal, there's sort of a, a fluidity and an uncertainness of whether it's really done or it's stupidity sort of, too. Stupidity. That it's good enough. It'll, okay, where are we really? Are we really ever done? Yeah. Um, oh, my. This is actually one of my favorite stories. And I shared it with you before. But basically, yeah. I wrote this thing back when I was a carpenter. I said, you you would actually ask me, like, were there any rituals that you did? And I'm like that. I had one particular ritual. And it's yes. what every carpenter does. At the end of the day, about 20 minutes before you knock off, you sweep, you clean everything, you put your tools away, you put you, you yeah. get so you're ready for the next day. Okay, well, that's so with my truck. I would, you could uh, tell the emotional state of my life based on the back <laughs> of my truck. If it was chaos, my life was chaos. That is the way yeah. it was. But I'll tell you what, man, I would put the tools back into my truck and I would shut the door and I would go home and hang out with my kids. And I, life was good. I did not think yeah. about that job until I got up the next day at six o'clock. And then Great. I was thinking about it. And there's a, there's that kind of ritual actually had a, a really nice line of demarcation for me that was pretty important. You know, I mean, that was it was a big part of that. So that I wanted to make sure I mentioned that to you. So. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's um, that's key. I think that, you know, a clean desk isn't something that many office workers do. There's sort of a, you know, that rich a ritual at the end of the day to say this is where it ends because they're they're still getting emails. Hmm. And their phones are still they're they're carrying the laptop home yeah um this that, work that i have that all the into, yeah bleeds into the rest of your life you can you can't take a carpentry job home necessarily you no um you you got to be on the job site i mean with woodworking if your shop is next to your house and you do sort of go back out after dinner it can bleed in a little bit but you're still not it's there's still a, something of a difference there it's at least or if not a difference in kind then a diff, strong difference in degree uh, but on that note i think we should say i should say a thank you so very much tim for your time your insights uh the pleasure of speaking with you which is always great uh and um any anything to add before we we let our our podcastees go not at all. Thank you, Strather, for the opportunity to talk to you. And I, I really appreciate it. And I, I wish you well in the uh, exploration of these ideas. I, I think they're really helpful to Thanks. Us. And so another awkward ending to a very good. Uh, and so another awkward ending to an interview with a very interesting person. I uh, hope you enjoyed and hope you tune in. I don't know, whenever another one of these posts. Thanks very much.